Let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would, um, as we've been here in your presence and we've been singing and we've been worshiping you, um, I know that whenever um, I stand here before people to talk about what your word has to say and, and what you have laid on my heart, I know people come from all different places. And I know there are some who um, are coming from pain, some real sorrow. There's some who are coming from places of real fear, concerns, whether it be in family or their finances, different places. God, and then there's some coming with joy and excitement and celebration because of things that are going on. But what's really cool is that you know how to meet each one of us where we're at. And I ask your Holy Spirit to come. And we would just present humble hearts to hear from you. Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in a series on Matthew's account of Jesus' healing ministry. And we've been looking at the stories that you find, especially in chapters 8 and 9, just to learn about how God heals and and get an understanding and, and desire to know the way God heals today. It's interesting as I study this topic, and it's not something that I've just studied over the last few weeks or months or year. It has been something that I have really kind of paid attention to for a number of years for a number of different reasons and have read a number of things about it. But as I was studying just recently over the last few months, I came across um, some things that John MacArthur had written specifically in this area when he was speaking on these passages of Scripture. And, and he, he wrote about the fact that illness in that time of Christ was much more prevalent than it is today. And he went on to share some of those things. And I, and I thought to myself, yeah, that's that's true in a sense. That's true. But I just kind of was wondering as I was reading through it and it was very uh, cogently um, put together in his understanding of this. And I began to think, though, could it be that illness back then was just really just more obvious, less civilized, maybe a bit more barbaric and less sanitized? And when people were sick, you would know it because their bodies would actually show it. It was a pretty visible thing some of the illnesses and things that were carried back then. Because today, with our modern health, knowledge, and practices, in many ways, we've eradicated some of those illnesses and sicknesses and things that were very visible and, and, and debilitated people, deformed people. But as I was thinking about it and really working through this, I, I began to really ask and consider, is it really true, though, that we don't have an issue with illness today? Is the matter of illness and sickness really that insignificant if you have yourself been told that you're ill with something or you have a family member or a friend who has been just diagnosed and and even though it may not be like it was, it's just as influential. It still impacts us in deep ways. And as I was thinking about it, most of our diseases, when you think about it, may not be like they were back then. They were much more visible, much more deforming. But in many ways, our diseases are just as real today. They're just not as seen. There's all kinds of variety of cancers and digestive disorders and diabetes and high blood pressure, arthritic conditions, asthma, allergies, anxiety disorders, migraines, chronic pain, MS, Parkinson's, Huntington's, Alzheimer's, chronic fatigue syndrome, ALS, PMS, HIV, ADD, STD. I mean, I just, that's just a small list. And you could actually be sitting next to someone and not even be aware of the fact that they're carrying or they have something that is very, very debilitating. 
And as I really began to process, I thought, yeah, maybe it had been a more visible, more unsanitized, a less civilized, a less kind of seen thing. But it's just as real. In fact, it's really interesting as I was thinking about it and and processing it this week on Tuesday morning, I picked up out of the mailbox in Newsweek, the latest Newsweek, and I found it interesting that I'm in this series and and God has led us to talk about this. And and here's the cover story of the double issue for May 24th and 31st for Newsweek. Desperately seeking cures is the cover. How the road from promising scientific breakthrough to to real-world remedy has become all but a dead end is the subtitle. And there's a, there's a line in here I thought was very interesting. It says, diseases are complicated. And they really, really are. I have a very good friend who's a medical doctor down in Atlanta, and I have a couple others. Um, there's even some in the church where you talk to them, and they'll, they'll tell you that, you know, yes, we come to understand more, we understand the processes of these things. But in many ways, people come to us and they expect us to have some kind of magic pill or some kind of way that we can just cure these things, and we really don't. In some cases, we do. Diseases are complicated, they write. Nature fights every human attempt to mess with with what she has wrought. But frustration is growing with how few seemingly promising discoveries in basic biomedical science lead to something that helps patients, especially in what is supposed to be a golden age of genetics, neuroscience, and biomedical research in general. That's really interesting. Here we are in, in a culture where it's a very important thing. And so we'll get back to this whole passage of Scripture in and, and, uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9 as we've been looking at these things. And, and if one thing, hopefully, that you'll take from this, because I say it every week, is chapters 8 and 9 are bookended. There's a bookend with chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 9, verse 35. Because Matthew wants to kind of get our attention and say, here's the characteristic of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then in chapters 5 through 7, we have the declaration of the kingdom of God spoken out. And then the, the actual reality of the kingdom of God expressed through his life, through the healings and miracles and things that he does. But what's really interesting in chapter 4, verse 23, after it says this, there is this point where it says that news spread about Jesus. And as a result of this, large crowds followed him. And every once in a while, when these crowds would gather around him, there would be a few who would be so enamored with Jesus. They would be so enamored with his wisdom. They would be so enamored with this rabbi who would come, who spoke with authority. But not only did he speak with authority, but his life was lived in such a way that it, it understood. He understood and he loved and he touched and he reached out and he did these kind of things that no one else did. And there would be a few people who would be on the sidelines who would be watching and they would go, I want to somehow get close enough, and they would walk to the front and they would come up to Jesus after they had seen what he had done. And they would ask, can I be one of your followers? I don't want to just know what you know. I want to live like you live. I want to, in in this life, do what you do. That's what a rabbi did with his students. He actually transferred not just knowledge, but a life that was totally transformed. And he taught them over those three years. And they would approach Jesus and they say, where do I sign up? I want to be a full-fledged, certified follower, disciple. What do I need to do? 
Is this they were standing in the sense on the edge of the crowd who are these spectators on the sidelines who eventually are so called because of what they see happening and what they've heard spoken that they can't help but be compelled to move in and say, how can I be one of you? How can I be a part of this? How can I be a player? How do I get in the game? And listen to Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law, a scribe, one who understood the legalness of God's word, came to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Fox have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So he must have been a follower. There were different designations of the word disciple. There were those who were the 12, and then he sent out 70-some disciples. And then there was the fact there was a whole group of us, about four or 500 that would follow him. So it was kind of like the word follower, which is true for us today. You may be here for the first time, or you may be checking out what does it mean to really know Jesus And I'm thrilled if you're here and and you may be some of your first steps or you may be even wondering what it means to follow. A follower of Jesus can be at any point along the way. But at a certain point, there is a sense of coming forward and say, I don't want to just be on the side. I don't want to be just a few steps away. I want to walk with you. And that's what's going on here. So he said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus told him. Follow me. Priority right now. Follow me. Remember, because he's going over to the other side. He's going over to the other side of the lake. You need to follow me and let the dead bury their own dead, which seems highly insensitive. Let me give you a little background first before we get into this. Jesus, it says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him. What I love about Jesus is um, when God shows up and when he begins in the move in the hearts and the lives of people, people take notice. When the Spirit of God begins to move and, and begin to work in the hearts of people, people begin to watch and, and people begin to crowd around and people want to see what is this because it's something that's not just human, it's divine. It's something that actually is energy that's coming from the living God in this life. And what's interesting is when you read the, the, the New Testament gospel writers, you see that Jesus didn't need a PR plan. He never sat down with a marketing strategy. He basically walked in fellowship with his father, was led by the Holy Spirit. And all he needed was the presence of the Holy Spirit with power. And people began to crowd around. So when Jesus saw the crowd, Luke indicates this, that Jesus didn't need gimmicks. In fact, he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 14, there are a few of my favorite verses. After the, the um, baptism of Jesus, it says that the Spirit of God led him. Kind of, it was this idea almost like with a chain, kind of led him into the desert. And it says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the desert. Which I think is very interesting that a person can be full of the Spirit and you can be led by the Spirit. But as you look at what happens to Jesus, he goes through this crucible, this testing, this trial. Because in that trial, God is, is not only bringing about a, a forming of his own character further. Because it says that he learned obedience through suffering. It it was this character building time, this, this work that was being done in his life. That so that when he came back, if you read in verse 14, it says that Jesus returned to Galilee. And you have to note this in the power of the spirit. 
It is possible to be led and to be full and yet not have, in that sense, the power that comes upon you that, that calls the work of God out. And although I titled this series, Jesus Still Heals, my deepest desire and has been is that we understand that our deepest need, if we are going to make a difference at all in this community, in this church, in this life, is like Jesus, we need the power of the Spirit. And some of the things God might be doing in your life might be that very crucible character testing, that time of where he is forming so that he can allow for a measure of power to come upon you as you seek to walk in his fullness. What he may be doing in us in a body in this whole time is some of his character building. He's forming something within his body, this church, so that he can pour out in that sense a measure of his fullness of power that can begin to do the kind of things we could never do in our own strength. And so Jesus sees his crowd and as he sees the crowd begin to form around him, he also then says, I command, let's go somewhere. There's a sense where I went looking at just this part of the message, and I just kind of wanted to stop right here. And I just wanted to challenge you to think for a second. Have you ever asked the Holy Spirit of God to fill your heart and life? Have you ever said, God, come upon me with power? Has, has the church together said, Holy Spirit of God, fill us. Your body, that we might manifest the power of God. Well, if you look at verse 20, it goes on, and another little background thing I just want to share with you is Jesus uses a title, the Son of Man. And Matthew records this foxes have holes and birds have nests, but you see this, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's the first time when you when you come into the book of Matthew that Jesus uses this title, the self-designation Son of Man. It's Found in the other Gospels, but at this point, Jesus, Matthew introduces it. And the title is used in three different ways. And, and so Jesus is, 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 at this point, using this title specifically, and Matthew's introducing it specifically because he wants to begin to help people see who this Jesus really is. The title has three different designations. One is this idea of glory, and it's found in the book of Daniel. And so when he comes before the scribe and he's talking to the scribe who knows the book and knows the law, he would understand to some degree this title. It says in Daniel, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all the peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. So Jesus uses his title to this scribe who would have understood that he's this, here's this son of man, this one who has come, who is not just a man, but he's actually God in flesh. Here is the one that Daniel saw in a vision standing before me. But the title also had a different meaning as well. It talked about one's, his humanity, his need to suffer. And it's found in Psalm 8, verse 4. At one point in Psalm verse 4 of that chapter, it says, the Son of Man being made a little lower than angels. He uses a designation to say, men, you who are a little lower than angels, but the highest of God's created glory here on earth. 
And so in that sense, he's not only speaking about the glory, we also begin to see he's not he's the man. And, and as you go on, you see in Ezekiel, he uses the title in Ezekiel chapter two, verse one, where Ezekiel is told to go to a rebellious people. So when when the scribe is hearing this, he's hearing glory. But he should also know in his, his mind these words. A voice spoke to Ezekiel saying, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that's rebelled against me. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. So you have this picture of this son of man. And then the third way it can be used is just as a designation of like I. Jesus could have been saying um, when he says the son of man has no place to lay his head. It's the same way as saying I have no place to lay my head. And I think Jesus loved this title for this reason. He wanted people who in that day were looking for this king and this glorious one who would come, who would be the Messiah to set up this political kingdom. He also needed to use what I call this very elastic, flexible title so they would understand that not only was he both God in flesh coming as the Messiah, but he was also very human and would suffer and he would have to die. So he was constantly using a title to help inform who he was. And finally, remember Matthew's record of these stories is not just chronological, but they're thematic. And so when we come to this point, you have to ask yourself, why does he have three miracles, these three healings, and then come to the story where he says, follow me? And then there's three more miracles, and then there's the story of Levi who follows him. And then there's three more miracles, and then there's this story of Jesus who says, the Lord of the harvest needs servants, now ask and send them. Because... The reason and purpose that Matthew places this here is because when you see and you hear God's spirit speak to your heart, you see God at work in the lives of others. There is something, if your heart is open and seeking, that draws you in that says, I want to sign up. And so every time he uses these stories and he calls these people in and he informs us with this truth. Your life, as God works through it, should be something that causes others to begin to look at it and go, I want to know who this Jesus is. Where do I sign up when they see the kingdom of God? So the first thing that I want you to note is the goal of following Jesus. If you look at what Jesus is doing and what Matthew seems to do here is he puts a story where he puts it. Is he, he says all the things that you hear, all the declaration of his kingdom in chapters 5 through 7, all the things he's doing in chapter 8 up to this point should lead a person to say, I want to what? Follow Jesus. And the goal of following Jesus is not about healing and not about miracles. That's why when Jesus saw the crowd, he looked and he goes, you know what? I'm not here to set up a healing ministry. I'm not here merely to teach a bunch of truths. I'm not here to cause people to be enamored with what I'm saying. I am here to call people to follow me. And I am here to call people to know me intimately. Because you know what? If you're going to follow God, the only way you're going to be able to follow him in all fullness into the, the, the kind of living that he calls you to live within this kingdom because of what will happen, because God is going to radically move into your life and your heart and begin to form your heart so that your heart becomes like him. In that process, as he begins to move and he begins to work, the whole goal of that is to get you to know him personally. And he wants for you to have an encounter with the living God on a daily basis. And the only way you can follow him is if you have this living, fresh encounter with him. 
And so he makes it very clear. The goal is to have a daily living experience with him. So when he stands before these two guys, he, he basically stops the guy who's really quickly wants to join up. And then he looks at the other guy who's a little reluctant. And he says, I've been following you, but wait. He's calling them into a deeper understanding of what it really means to walk with him, which means to know him and to know his purposes and to walk in the intimacy of his ways. And the goal is to go deep in your relationship with Jesus. So when you read this account of force, you say, why does Jesus raise the bar? Jesus isn't just into people, crowds following him. When we look at this whole topic of healing. Healing is available in the kingdom of God, but we don't understand. We don't know when and why and how God moves in that. But the goal of following Jesus is not about just healing. In fact, you may come to him and plead and ask and, and may not understand when a healing doesn't come. The goal of following Jesus is to, in every case, even in the disappointment, is to move deeper and more fully into this relationship, to know this God who created you, so that this God who's created you begins to develop within you his character, so that his character is formed in such a way that you are prepared not only to love and to be a part of this world, but you are prepared to bring heaven to earth and to begin to walk in this way forever. And the goal... When healing we have prayed for, and I, I'm really reticent, and I, I, I hesitate to say that God chooses not to heal, because I don't know the mind of God, nor do you. I'm much more prone to say when God, when, when we pray and we plead and we, and we trust and, and we, we ask for and it, and it doesn't come through and, and we don't experience a healing, what we are called to do is, is, you know, in our flesh, we want to get angry, we want to be disappointed. What we're called to do is to follow him more deeply and more fully and to understand him more closely and to become more intimate with him. And Jesus even says, don't give up faith, but continue to pursue and follow. And so our hope isn't in healing, it's in knowing Jesus. And so as I was preparing this and, and, and I've been getting letters from people, I, I got a letter from someone that... I really feel is important to read because people have been asking me, well, what, what, what are you going to say, Pastor, when a person prays and they don't receive a healing? What, what, what's going on? And so I got this letter from Renee from our body. She says, the past few months I've heard some fantastic real accounts of how Jesus has miraculously healed people from all sorts of afflictions. To me, it seems so random. I mean, why this person and not that one? My story begins with my own birth. Oops, back up a little. My story begins just before I was born, knit together in my mother's womb and all that. My parents loved the Lord. Their family and friends were hard workers and in that order. And when my mother found out she was pregnant, my brother was 13, big sister was 11, and another sister was 8, and my parents were both in their 40s. I was not planned. During the pregnancy, my mom noticed a lump in her breast, and as she expected her doctor would want to treat it immediately, she kept it a secret. She feared that whatever treatment she would need would harm her baby. And when she finally did tell the doctor, the next day he did a biopsy and then removed a tumor the size of a goose egg. They let me cook a little longer, 
But then to the cesarean, as the doctor said, the pregnancy was like adding fuel to the fire. The pregnancy was making the cancer grow faster. I was one month early, but healthy. Immediately following my birth, her doctor reassessed her condition and determined that the cancer had already spread to her organs. There was not anything else the Mayo trained doctors could do. My parents belonged to a great church and news also spread like fire. She was on every prayer list and the elders anointed her with oil and prayed for her healing. They even contacted the Oral Roberts healing line. My mom believed with all her heart that she'd be healed. Nobody expected otherwise. God wouldn't take a mother from her teenage son, daughters, and a brand new baby, would he? What would be the point? What would anyone possibly learn from that? He wouldn't dare. No, she'd be healed and everyone would rejoice with the praise of a good, loving God who worked a miracle. Isaiah 54, 13 was a verse that my mom felt God gave to comfort her. And she thought it was about healing. It says, all your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be your children's peace. Let me just share with you from my own experience that people have given me words. I've had words that come from God. I just encourage you, like in this case here, to be very careful when you hold that and to say, God, I'm I'm not going to put my own. I'm going to let you determine what this fully means. And so she's given this verse and she says, however, she continued still to deteriorate. And as children were not allowed in the hospital back then, the nurses were kind enough to smuggle us kids into her room on Mother's Day. How she must have felt when her baby didn't know her and would not go to her. My siblings really didn't know what was going on either. For the next two weeks, she slipped in and out of consciousness. And on May 22nd, 1971, I was a nine-month-old, healthy, happy baby, unaware that my mom had just died. The Mother's Day visit was the last time my brother, sisters, and I saw our mom. In the days and months and years following my mother's death, God drew our family close. My dad remarried, and the story in itself of how they met and fell in love was itself a miracle. I have never thought of my new mom as my stepmom. She has always been my mom. I am grateful that we were raised learning about God and we were never without. We always had whatever we needed, food, clothes, a home, dad, and mom, and plenty of love, and even another baby sister. We were grateful and yet all grieved in different ways in different times. I'm sure they were disappointed. Growing up, I really tried my best to be good. When I was old enough to understand, my parents told me the circumstances behind my mother's death. My family tells me that I was a great source of comfort to them. But as I grew up and knew the story of how my mom sacrificed herself, my self-worth was shaky because I felt I was also the cause of their grief. Raised in a Christian home, I accepted Jesus at a very young age, and I tried so hard to be good. My sins... My little sins and I, my little sis and I argued a lot, but I really did try to follow the rules. I remember one instance where a former pastor of our church told me that he thought that when I was a little girl, I was a real, live, honest-to-goodness angel. He said, I don't think that anymore. You know, he was just joking about the last part, but I knew he meant every word. You know, people joke from time to time. You kind of go, yeah, there's some truth to that. My thinking began to be distorted as I made myself believe that it was true. I caused mom to die. 
I turned her death into being all about me when it had really nothing to do with me at all. Believing that I would never measure up, I started on a course toward a slippery slope. Who am I kidding? I used my mom's death as an excuse for my bad behavior. One tiny sin and then another. Sin was fun. Before I knew it, I had strapped on the skis and it was flying down the dark slope I was warned about as a child. As I mentioned earlier, I liked to follow the rules and tried to be good. So while around other Christians and my family, I was walking the walk as best I could, keeping up appearances. At that time, I didn't think God even cared what I did anyway. He was some distant God watching the earth from somewhere in space. And for 15 years, I did what I wanted. I was in charge of my life, and I was a lonely mess. I was that little lost sheep out on the ledge and couldn't find my way back. As he said he would, though, Jesus rescued me. My family was always praying for me, which I encourage you to pray, pray, pray. I knew they were not fooled. Jesus spoke to me through songs, verses, and through encouragement and notes from my mom who raised me. And yes, I even looked in my Bible occasionally. Finally, after trying so hard to clean up my life and myself, I realized I would never be worthy. I allowed God to take my life and transform me by his grace. Now, some people give accounts of how they are changed instantly, not so for me. It has been a process, and just when I think I'm all grown up and I'm doing it right, I fail. Well, out on that ledge, I did some awful things that did not deserve forgiveness. I asked anyway, knowing that Jesus promised. He promised to forgive. The verse that kept coming back to me was John 10.10. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to full. Where was my full life? I wasn't experiencing it. I had confessed my sins many times, but still did not feel like I was forgiven. When my husband and I were expecting our first child, and I wanted full life for my child, for my whole family, and so that whole pressure of wanting this full life came again. And I will never forget the moment I knew God is real and could be trusted. I was alone walking and talking to God. I was asking again if I was really forgiven for sinning against Him. And I remember tears were streaming down my face, and my shoulders were getting closer to my ears as I was talking faster and faster and barely breathing. I said, Lord... I know that you tell us that if we ask, we're forgiven. If you say we are, why don't I feel forgiven? I'm not having the full life. What else do I need to do or say to know that I'm forgiven? Please, just give me a hoop and I will jump through it. Ever felt that way? And you don't deserve it, so you keep saying, well, can I do something to deserve it? And God did this whole process as he's working in this person's life and is calling this person in our body, Renee, to him, and she writes, the next thing I remember is taking a breath and I heard something. I did not hear it out loud. It was in my head, but I knew it wasn't me who said it. I knew with every cell in my body that God just spoke to me. It was not through a verse or a song. It was original words just for me and to me. It was a simple sentence spoken firmly, but also gently. He said, let me Heal your heart. As I slowly exhaled the breath I had just taken, I replied, okay. And immediately my shoulders relaxed and I realized my tears were gone, dried. I felt this peace that passes all understanding. Well, I knew it was God talking to me because A, for one, I knew it. You know, I know that I know that I know. And B, for two, I'm not smart enough to think of that. Let him heal my heart. 
Never would have thought of that. God is a gentleman that has never forced anything on me. He was just waiting for me to ask the right question and take a breath so that he could answer. And since that day that I so eloquently said just this word, okay, he's been healing my heart. And he still gives me songs and verses and encouragement to my family, friends, and also this church. I believe him when he says I am forgiven, even though I do not deserve it. He gently reaches to those dark nooks and crannies of my heart and scrubs them clean one by one. Folks, she is experiencing, encountering the living God in her life. And I want to tell you to walk with him even when you go through a process where you think someone should have been healed or all these things that we go in our life. And God has to grab hold of your heart. You have to know him and walk with him and encounter him. You have to know that there is a God who wants to interact, who wants to live with you, who wants to walk with you. You may not hear a voice in your head, but there is a God who deeply loves you, who wants to be with you. I say this to you who are in high school or your kids. God loves you and he wants to be a part of your life. And you will not make it through some of these things in life without this incredible understanding that the whole goal of following Jesus is not to get a healing. It's not to get a good grade on a test. It's not to get some kind of job that you want. It's not that you even get some financial provision or any of these things. It is to know the living God that you can encounter. Who is willing to come no matter what you've done, no matter how you've turned away from, no matter what sin is in your life, no matter how you feel that you don't measure up, that you don't deserve it. This God so loves you that he wants to come in and he wants to move in and take residence in your life, not because of you and what you could do, but because he comes and he says in a voice to you, even this morning, let me heal your heart. And she writes, he's reminded me of all the blessings that her family received as a result of my mom's death. If she had lived, I wouldn't have had my baby sister, whom I love with all my heart. And she even has a family of her own, and they love the Lord. And I also have a, a, my mom, my mom who raised me. I would have never even met her, let alone have her care for me and my brothers and sisters, as if they were her very own. I love her even more. We'd be here all day if I continued the list of blessings, even though there was so much pain and sacrifice. So often God uses sacrifice in our pain in order to move through it to do incredible things, if you're open to that. February 10th, 2005. My husband and I were not planning on having kids for various reasons, but God had other plans. So on February 10th, 2005, our son was born. And now we can't imagine our lives any other way without kids. No way. Cody's birthday was extra special for me. Catch this. He was born on my mom's birthday. And my mom, who raised me, said, it's like your mom is giving you a kiss from heaven. God coordinated this event to be timed just right to show me that my mom is pleased. Does that sound like something a God who's watching from somewhere in space would do? What a gift. What a gift. The goal is to know Jesus. The reason we say in our mission statement here, 
is our desire is to help each person to take their next step in knowing and following Jesus is because that's what we believe it's all about. The reason we have these three values, encounter God, grow in community, and impact our world, is that we know that you can't impact our world. You cannot grow in community unless you have an encounter with God. This God who changes your life, who comes into your life, who leads you by his Holy Spirit so that your spirit begins to take you to places that you would never imagine. So that when these two disciples who want to be disciples come up to Jesus, the one who's in a very hasty way says, I want to follow you. Here's a scribe. He's looking at Jesus. And in his mind, he sees the Son of Man, this one in glory, who's going to come, who's going to set up his kingdom. And he's saying, I want to be with this guy because I want this stuff. And Jesus has to say, you don't quite understand it. This is not about follow Jesus and I'll bless you and I'll make you financially well and I'll do all these good and wealth, health and all this kind of stuff. This is about a God who loves you and who will take you as you walk with him and transform your character because he's about a spiritual work within your heart and your spirit so that you can begin to understand that there is suffering. So when you look at me, says Jesus, you have to understand that I've come to suffer like the foxes that have a hole, like the birds that have an air, you know, have a nest to, to have a home. And I won't have that. Are you willing to follow me? And I ask you, are you willing to follow him? That even though you may pray, as it says in God's word, and in faith and do all that you can and say, God, be healed. And then you feel disappointed when you drive deeper into this Jesus and know this Jesus. When you experience suffering, when you experience a loss of hope, when you're in this place of despair, will you then turn once again, like Jesus says, and, and still have faith? Because it's not about what you're going to get. It's about who you become. It's because of who God is. And then there's the other one who comes, and he's not the one who's so hasty and wanting to be a disciple. He's more reluctant. He's kind of saying, you know, Jesus, I've been following you for a bit. This is really cool. But first, I got this priority. And it sounds like Jesus is being really mean. He isn't. In the, in the law, the to- in, in the books of the law, they would take from the fifth commandment, and they made one of the highest responsibilities of man, is that when your parent dies, no matter what other re- obligations you have, you go do that. What Jesus is saying, the highest obligation you have, whatever you think, that cannot come first before what God is doing in your heart. When he's leading you and he's directing you, the most important thing is that you follow his lead. It will may even mean that at times you will have to say, says Jesus, I bring a sword to divide father and mother, son and, and daughter, those kind of things, because he at times separates us. He is so desiring to make us like him that he will cut even unhealthy, dysfunctional patterns and say, you know what? More important than what your family or what your friends or anyone else thinks, you need to step away from that and begin to follow me. So the ones he's saying, I'm calling you towards something that's so different than what you think. And from one, he's saying, I'm calling you from something that holds you back. But in the middle of that place, would you as a people so forcefully grab hold of heaven, bring it down to earth as a group of people and live like true followers of Jesus that says, whatever it means, Jesus, whatever the cost, however you want to do this, I just surrender everything to you. That's what God has called us to be. That's who we are. We're not about being a group of people that create services that that people go away and go, wow, I feel really good about that. We're not about people creating even adult classes where people will go away and they go, man, I learned a whole lot. I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm saying the key to all that we're about is knowing this Jesus and being filled with the spirit. So the spirit of God begins to transform our character that we love people. And through that love and through that motivation to move into people's lives, people see something different. They experience even the interaction of God doing powerful miracles and they are looking at this body, this place, and they're going, I want to sign up. 
And then Jesus raises the bar and goes, do you really want to? I want to share with you tomorrow at 4 p.m. I'm going to be um, conducting a service for a person um, who is a friend of mine. And not, not, not like one of my like closest of friends, but a person I've known for a long time who um, meant so much to me in the sense of the way he lived his life. And the more I get to even know that, he's reading in his prayer journals. He writes, I want to be this kind of person. His name was Gary. And some of you heard of it. He was killed on a bicycle um, Wednesday. You may have heard it, a man in Plymouth. In his prayer journal, he writes, Loving others meant to forgive like Christ forgave. We cannot hate our brother and say we love God. We must always apply forgiveness. That's what it means to be a disciple. At one point he says, Lord, help me cast my cares, the cares of this world, on you so that I can focus on what is truly important, things that impact our eternal souls, and especially make me one that does it for my wife and family. On Wednesday evening, Gary was driving, riding his bike down on 47, and he made a turn, a left corner onto Lonsdale. And he met his death. He ran into a car. And I think tomorrow there will probably be 500, 600 people or more. Through his life, um, God used him in his grace to, to touch people's lives, to, to cause them to understand him. And, and as I was thinking about this and as preparing about this and, and getting my heart ready for tomorrow, I, I couldn't help but ask you to think this question, to close with this. What are you really giving your life for? Gary had no idea when he left place he worked, the, the, he's the owner of Sailor's World, that when he left that on his bike, that he would turn a corner and be gone. There is not a person in this room that knows what the next corner holds for you. You, you have no guarantee that when you walk out of here, there will be a corner you turn and you don't know what it will be. But I ask you to consider when you just think about it, what in your life are you doing that really, truly is making a difference? Let's pray, Father. Right now, as we pray, I pray for some people who maybe are saying, you know what? I need an encounter with you. I need to know. And I even need to feel and, and believe the truth that and it's not about my worthiness. And I just want to say this. If you are at that place, it is not about your worthiness right now. All you need to do is trust in what God through Jesus has done for you. Just open your heart, receive his forgiveness, and he will begin to move into your life. And for some of you, you've been on the sidelines. And God, through this, is saying it's time to get in the game. Maybe with your, your family. Maybe it's with your, your wife or husband. Or maybe it's at work with people around you. Or maybe it's in some place to serve whatever. God is saying today is the day to sign up. Thank you, Lord. Amen.